the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Gee whiz, my turn again. Hey, good afternoon to you. Welcome. Happy New Year. Welcome on board, officially, if I might, to the... uh, Brand new year of 2021. Greg Roberts keeping you company as we do each weekday afternoon from 5 until 7 p.m. Addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Much to talk about, much to get caught up on during the course of tonight's broadcast. We've asked constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus to uh, drop on by, give us a bit of an update in relationship to the uh, shelter-in-place orders, COVID regulations across the Bay and the state, and what it means for churches in the new year. Certainly, we continue to face many of the same challenges as we've entered into a brand new year that we sort of left or didn't leave behind, more accurately put, as we wrapped up 2020. So a a lot to sort of focus in on as we sort of um, get our sense of... um, direction coming into a brand new year post-holiday season. Uh, We've also asked Brian Johnston to join us later on in the program to kind of give us a report on the abortion front in 2020. Some staggering numbers. That's a bit of a mixed bag, and we'll tell you what I mean by that a little bit later on. And then economist Jerry Bauer is going to join us, give us a bit of a, uh, a glimpse into the forecast for 2021 economically, and I have to tell you, numbers we're seeing from organizations like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, even the Fed, are very promising. In fact, I had to do a double take when I read that the Federal Reserve is predicting 4.2% median forecast for GDP growth in 2020. 21. You know, we usually feel good if we have 3%. So I'm suggesting that likely much of this is being driven by a sense of recovery with the development and now deployment of the COVID-19 vaccine. And please, folks, don't don't play with that. Um, I understand the temptation to sort of take a wait-and-see attitude, and I know that there have been some anecdotal reports in the media related to people having pretty severe reactions, though I suppose largely that can be said of um, almost any type of inoculation. Some people just respond to them better than others. But the notion of being able to get inoculated and get back to living life again um, is a very critical one if we hope for our uh, nation economically to... uh, 
to survive and for families and small businesses. My goodness, have just been, <coughs> pardon me, absolutely ravaged by the impact of COVID since uh, March of last year. Hard to imagine we're even talking about the fact that we're coming up on a nine-month anniversary since the last or first lockdown, and here we are stealing with the last lockdown and anticipated to be expanded for the unforeseen future. We know that certainly this Friday it was supposed to expire across the greater Bay Area. Now in San Francisco they're saying indefinitely, and the shelter-in-place orders in other counties around the Bay Area taking a watch-wait-and-see attitude. So much to go through as we move into the brand-new year. And one of the issues I think that ought to be front of mind, even as the uh, the vote is wrapped up here in Georgia just about seven minutes ago, polling places across the state closing, and there's going to be um, deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say, <laughs> um, as we sit in lie in anticipation of what the outcome will be insofar as the uh, the direction of the United States Senate in the, the coming years. And I know that it has a lot of people nervous, and understandably so. I think, though, that we need to keep a number of factors here not only close to mind, but perhaps even closer to heart. Um, between the vote today in Georgia, and it may take a day or two for them to finalize the count and give us the uh, certified outcome in relationship to the senatorial race there. And then along with it, of course, tomorrow, the Electoral College certification. I think it's a good time for us to be reminded to take close examination of the relationship between our faith and our political views. I know that there is a growing sense of uncertainty heading into the future. And all of us feel as if we have a right to fight for our rights, expose the opposing side, defend our candidate, all of this. But I think we need to be cautious, too, and be mindful that at the end of the day, we need to count the cost and really ask ourselves the question, in whom or what? do we derive our sense of identity and our hope? Is it based on ideology? Is it based on political persuasion? Leaders being in positions of power? Or from God? Perhaps as we start the new year, it's high time to take a step back and look at where our true alliances and allegiance lies. And there was a recent article posted on the Focus on the Family website that I thought I would share with you that I think you might find um, illuminating, if not enlightening and encouraging and directive. And the question as we head into this new season, and as much as there is great talk and even consternation going on as to what may or may not transpire tomorrow in the Senate with the confirmation of the um, certification, rather, of the Electoral College vote and what this means for the nation moving ahead into the um, inauguration in just two weeks hence. Let's all ask ourselves the question, why should I submit to a government that I believe is moving us in the wrong direction? 
I know that many of us love our country. We want to cooperate with the political system, but we struggle to understand what the Scripture has to say on this topic. And how in the world can someone like the Apostle Paul tell Christians to submit to the authorities as he does in Romans 13 when we know for a fact that many human governments are corrupt and unjust? What should then a believer do when he feels that his own government is ungodly? Well, the Bible, in fact, does command Christians to submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13.1, and to pray for kings and those who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, as we're encouraged in 1 Timothy 2.2. These words perhaps more striking when we realize that Paul penned them during the reigns of the Roman emperors Nero and Caligula, two of the worst tyrants known to history. The point is clear. As long as we can do so without denying Christ or compromising our faith, we must always strive to cooperate with the ruling powers. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we will endorse all of their policies or approve of every specific action they take. This is especially true in a democratic society where it is the duty of responsible citizens to examine public servants with a discerning and critical eye. Nevertheless, Christians are responsible to uphold biblical righteousness in a hostile culture while expressing respect for its leadership. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, we have provided some valuable insight into this problem. Chapter 3, Section 1 of God's Eternal Decree, the framers of this document write the following. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whosoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Close quote. Well, what do these words actually mean? Well, simply this. God is sovereign over human events. At the same time, he gives people the freedom to make their own choices, to go their own way. In other words, no one can become a king, emperor, governor, president, or assemblyman, or senator apart from God's will. But this doesn't mean that possession of political power amounts to a stamp of approval from God. That's where the will of the creatures and the liberty and contingency of a whole host of secondary causes comes into play. After all, the Bible calls King Nebuchadnezzar God's servant in Jeremiah 25 and 9. This obviously does not imply that Nebuchadnezzar was a godly man. The long and short of it all, as we ponder the outcome of the election in Georgia tonight and what may or may transpire tomorrow with the certification of the Electoral College vote, is simply this. God is always in charge. Let me say that again. God is always in charge. We may not trust the governing authorities, but we have to, as a sense of survival and out of necessity, we have to trust him. Under normal circumstances, we can demonstrate that trust by cooperating with the state, things like paying taxes, participating in the system, staying out of trouble. That doesn't mean that we should be blind. We can never forget that the power of human rules is subject to a higher power. 
It's contingent upon the absolute sovereignty of God. And let us always and ever be mindful that God is still in control. And we need to be in prayer for those who govern or rule over us. That's not contingent on whether or not they're part of your political party or happen to agree with your political viewpoints. It just simply says we are to be in prayer for those who rule over us. And as much as I know many of us have been praying for the outcome of the election, praying for the outcome of the Senate race in Georgia, praying for what will transpire tomorrow in the certification of the Electoral College vote. Let's not make that the start and stop point, but simply the beginning point where we will continue in an attitude and spirit of prayer and, um, and try to be mindful that at the end of the day, that which is most important is that we place our hope in God, not in a political party, not in a political leader, at least we build our lives on a faulty foundation. And trust me, if we do that, if we fail to put our trust in God, then our foundation will collapse. Maybe not today, but one day it will, and it will cost us dearly. Now again, let me be clear as I conclude my thoughts here. I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote or care about what's happening in our country. We should. I'm simply cautioning all of us to be aware of where our heart lies. An increasing number of Christians are willing to sacrifice their faith for their political party, their political beliefs, nationalism, even their sense of quote-unquote rights, without thinking first and foremost that their primary allegiance belongs to God himself and to truth if we fail in those priorities, it becomes a very dangerous game that we play, one that will eventually cost all of us this country. So make sure at the end of the day, we support truth. We boldly stand up for God's truth, push back against evil as God defines it. And most importantly, be the salt and light that God has called us to be. 518 on the clock. Let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 5.22 or so on the clock at my, starting the new year, my digital clock has lost a digit. So I guess we're going to kind of guess at this here tonight. <laughs> to which my engineer Nate says, and what would be different than last year? <laughs> All right, as we continue on, let's um, let's pivot to the, um, the ongoing shelter-in-place orders. They were put in place um, early December in uh, some communities around the Bay Area, some counties rather, they are scheduled to expire unless extended on Friday, although San Francisco has theirs in place now indefinitely. So um, I guess we're going to wait and see what the decisions are based on um, hospital occupancy levels 
in the uh, the ER in rather in the the ICUs later in the week. But meanwhile, it's been a hectic year to be sure in relationship to not only businesses trying to negotiate and navigate through all of this, but churches especially so. And one man who's found 2020 to be one of the quietest, most boring years of his career is my next guest, Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, whom I'm sure buried 2020 uh, quite deeply at the stroke of midnight. There are reports that we had drone footage, Brad, of you in the back backyard burying your 2020 calendar <laughs> at midnight yes <laughs> this was a uh, incredible uh year challenging year very busy year uh yet it's very productive year too though and that we were able to help so many churches Craig, in private christian schools um to overcome uh bullying from governors and, and towns uh to be able to to reopen uh, sometimes creatively, uh, but uh, to to fill the needs of, of their congregations, and uh, we're uh, it's, it's been an exciting year to to really uh, assist the body of Christ. I think uh, like never before for our ministry at Pacific Justice Institute, and, and certainly as I indicate, a challenging one for for many pastors who you know typically this is not what they do. Right? They're 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 not engaged in trying to. Um, ascertain what is being going through the mind of the governor or the board of supervisors for a given county or their local town. They're just there to preach the gospel, encourage their congregation, be the, the shepherd of the sheep that God has put him in charge of, right? And suddenly now we've asked pastors all across the state and the union to try and figure out how to care for not only the spiritual needs of members of their congregations, but also look after the physical well-being in relationship to all of this COVID-19 business, and then do all of that set against the backdrop of trying to interpret and understand how much authority and control do govern, governing bodies have over the right and ability of churches to meet, gather, do what they do. And of course, that's been a, a very big challenging uh, arena for most churches to try and negotiate. Give us a sense as we're here now in 2021. What are some of the things that um, pastors and churches need to continue to think of top of mind? And as we talk about the ongoing shelter-in-place orders in communities like San Francisco being now apparently extended indefinitely, what are the repercussions, if any, for local congregations? Well, uh, churches need to realize that things have changed uh, dramatically uh, just in the last uh, few weeks when the United States Supreme Court uh, changed direction and ruled five to four, uh, courtesy of Amy Coney Barrett's appointment to the Supreme Court, I might add, um, has, has moved positively five to four to rule that uh, governments, governors, they can't put the Constitution on a shelf, uh, that constitutional rights are never uh, on hold, and that governors and, and legislators and mayors, whoever, and, and whenever they uh, create a substantial burden on religious freedom, they have to show a compelling state interest in that what they're ordering is the most least restrictive means of, of carrying out what they think needs to be done or, or protected. And we see that governor, time and time again, we've seen governors and mayors and others arbitrarily at times, it seems, uh, put out orders and shutdowns uh, that are unequal and unfair in terms of their application. You can have a a Home Depot filled with people that a church can't. You can have a, an American Airlines flight 
stuffed with every seat filled uh, in a confined space for five, four or five hours, um, and yet people can't be in a spread out in a, in a sanctuary, uh, basically, and and with well, it's well ventilated. So that's one reason why we at Pacific Justice have filed a major lawsuit against the governor Gavin Newsom and uh, Santa Clara County. Uh, we have other lawsuits filed. I'm very optimistic we're going to see them prevail. Another one uh, on behalf of the Church of Walnut, California. Uh, we've seen some other earlier victories. But uh, I'm very optimistic that uh, at the end of the day, churches are going to uh, be protected and have great case law uh, preventing this kind of uh, arbitrary and capricious actions, to quote the Supreme Court, uh, from happening again. At the end of the day, in your opinion, Counselor, how much of this is on the churches? How much of this is on decisions made by individuals? I mean, if, for example, uh, I know that uh, I have a heart condition, say, and knowing this, I nevertheless decide to get on the fastest, highest roller coaster at an amusement park, and in doing so, I, it, it triggers a heart attack, but I knew this going in. Um, can, can we really argue that the ride operator, the amusement ride operator, is somehow responsible for me making an unwise choice? Equally, if somebody's in a high-risk category and they choose to go to a, a gathering that has hundreds of people there that are not practicing social distancing, not wearing a face mask, is that really the responsibility at the end of the day of the venue? Or is it ultimately a case of personal responsibility? Well... Uh, principally, I would say it's personal responsibility. That said, uh, the Supreme Court in their New York decision did point out how the church and the synagogue that brought the lawsuit uh, were above reproach in how they they had masks, they had social distancing, uh, they were very uh, conscious to, to do everything they could do to reasonably reduce the risk. Of course, at the end of the day, if people take off their masks and in the middle of a service or whatever, then, I mean, you know, there's only so much a church can do. So I think churches need to recognize that they, it's very important that they're not just rogue, they just, you know, and, uh, not paying attention to uh, safety measures. And that's why we at Pacific Justice have on our website uh, a 96-point checklist for churches to use, safety checklist to, to make sure they're doing everything they can do. If they do everything they can do to be above reproach, um, then based on the Supreme Court, uh, they'll be protected to be able to have uh, church services and, and such gatherings, uh, especially outdoor services and gatherings, which the Center for Disease Control has themselves come out and said um, is, is not a dangerous thing, uh, to, a dangerous way for people to meet. It gets it's cold outside. They're going to probably want you know, a place for people to come indoors. Uh, but we have a double standard. It's clear unequal treatment under the law. And we at Pacific Justice Institute are calling that out in our litigation. And like I say, we're hopeful we're going to see good, the kind of case law at the end of the day to make sure this kind of tyranny uh, never happens again. And there's a reason why people are trying to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, it's picking up momentum, and I think uh, for good reason, because people see, uh, many people at least see his actions as being unreasonable and at the very least discriminatory, um, even if uh, seemingly uh, with good intentions, uh, possibly. You mentioned about that uh, multifaceted checklist that's available, really a, a legal guide for churches that are uh, dealing with navigating through the challenges. And as I mentioned at 
the the top of the hour in my opening remarks tonight. Hopefully, as we move through the deployment of the vaccine, we'll begin to see uh, the the enormity of this threat put behind us, and we'll you know begin to slowly but surely move into a, a greater sense of uh, security and safety as uh, as we get a handle on this. But in the meanwhile. Uh, taking the necessary steps to protect your congregation, protect your church, critically important. Where on the PJI website can they find that checklist? Uh, they just, they just uh, go to the website and then click uh, churches, um, and under there they'll, they'll find that, that information. There's also the uh, roaming videos on the Zoom calls. Um, but they need to have that, um, you know, because, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of tyranny and there's people from Sacramento on down that are finding uh, pretextual reasons to attack churches um, and are very hostile. And that's why, um, you know, that's why churches need to be up front doing what they're doing. Um, and, you know, if they want to, um, you know, take those precautions, they need to. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, there's also churches that are going one step further, getting politically involved and sending their people to a recall gavin2020.com you know to do sign a petition um there's a whole spectrum that churches can do but the very minimum that they need to do though is to make sure they're above reproach and meeting that checklist uh, and accomplishing those those needs and again information available on the web at pacificjustice.org that's pacificjustice.org and our thanks to the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute Brad Dacus for that update. Hey, speaking of updates, uh and this is always offered with a um sort of a, a, a word of warning that it's only 45% of the precincts reporting. It's early yet. Polls have only been closed for 35 minutes in uh, Georgia, but so far, 45% of the precincts reporting um, we have in the two Senate runoffs between John Ossoff and David Perdue. Uh, John Ossoff currently with 54.2% of the vote against David Perdue's 45.8%. And in the uh, runoff election between Raphael Warlock and Kelly Loeffler, 54.5% for Raphael Warnock and Kelly Loeffler with 45.5%. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, certainly one of the highlights, or better put, lowlights of 2020 was the impact of COVID-19 on the economy, which... For some, they've survived okay. Others have gotten along quite well and actually benefited quite nicely from the impact of COVID-19. But still, a good percentage of Americans have suffered and continue to suffer under the weight of the impact of shutdowns and things of this sort. So as we've turned a corner into a new year and as with the uh, de- deployment of the vaccine, is there a brighter sense of the future economically? Well, with some insights on 2021, uh, Jerry Bauer has got his uh, crystal ball <laughs> all polished and ready to go. He, of course, is a economist, author, journalist, publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily. And Jerry, always great to have you with us. Always great to be with you, Craig. 
Now, I understand, of course, in reality, you don't have a real crystal ball in front of you, but you do a pretty fine job, my friend, at reading the proverbial tea leaves and looking at all of the indicators, uh, both in terms of what's happening on Wall Street, what's going on in relationship to Main Street, and then some of the other predictors, some of which, frankly, Jerry, I found a little bit surprising. For example, uh, today, Morgan Stanley came out and they they changed their estimate for their outlook for 2021, uh, projecting that GDP could grow at a pace of 6.4%. Wow. Yeah, um, that's not unreasonable. By the way, it's a bowling ball. I've got a bowling ball, not a crystal ball. Um, so I don't know <laughs> if, if, if that counts. Um, the, the, um, I, you know, you and I talked about this on and off for a fair amount of last year. And what what I thought is that we would go down really hard, you know, with the beginning of the pandemic, and then come back very fast. Um, and that we would have a situation where the damage to the from the pandemic, the economic damage, would be kind of focused in certain industries and certain people. Um, and we talked about how there are some kinds of industries that get a lot of attention say, retail, malls, restaurants, uh, you know, professional sports, movie theaters. They make great B-roll for TV news, but that in terms of their economic heft, they weren't that big for the economy. You know, I mean, all of that stuff. I mean, all of the concerts and movie theaters and sports events and outdoor stuff, all of that put together is basically less than 1%. It's about half a percent of our annual output but it's highly visible. So there's the seen and the unseen. Um, and so those are the things that stay shut down longer. Um, whereas things like manufacturing, we barely missed a beat. We, we kept building things. And the manufacturing report just came out today for this most recent month. It's a, it's a 60 out of 100, which is highly expansionary. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not playing down the suffering of the people who are out of work. What I'm saying is that in terms of macroeconomic impact, people who, say, um, work at nail salons just don't move the needle that much. Now, I think they should move the needle of our pity. Uh, you know, I think the angels in heaven are looking down at people whose livelihoods are being destroyed and people who are working a minimum wage um, and aren't able to work, and that's a terrible tragedy. But that's different than whether it's going to keep the economy from recovering. It's just not – those sectors are just not big enough to stop us from recovering. So I so think when we, recovery when we... is well underway and that we're actually kind of booming now, except in those small, isolated sectors. And I suppose then, uh, Jerry, just for a point of clarification here, when people say, gee, look at the enormous disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. We've seen such phenomenal numbers, the S&P, the NASDAQ, whoa, you know, 30, 30 points up for the year, I think, as we, we wrapped up 2020. And yet we see, as you suggest, the, the suffering going on on Main Street. But I guess it's the number that's more obvious to us. And by that, I mean... We get in the car in the morning to take the kids to school or to head off to work. We drive by the local restaurant that's shuttered, the nail salon that's closed. We see the strip mall that has two or three, four lease signs today that weren't there this time a year ago. And we say, wow, look at what's happening. But your point is a very valid one, and that is that they are sectors of the economy 
that certainly brings a lot of pain to people that are in those sectors, but they're only a sliver, a small representation of the overall health of the economy. And we look at those numbers, my goodness, between the projections by Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs came out right. with a GDP right. growth estimation of 5.3% in 2021. Even the Fed, which tends to be more on the conservative side, even the Fed's forecast has been upped in in recent days from what had been a, a 4% uh, uh, anticipated increase over 2021 to 4.2%. So generally then your sense is that while some of the stories that we see that lead on the 6 o'clock news are indeed heartbreaking, it really only tells part of the story. Yeah, heartbreaking and a little horrifying. I mean, it's almost like one of these post-apocalyptic zombie movies, you know, seeing all these shuttered windows and everything. But remember, those are the highly visible industries by design, right? You don't, you don't put a factory on Main Street, right? You, you, I mean, you, the, those windows for those shops are there to be seen. So it's the things that are most easily seen that in this case involve the least social distancing. But, you know, uh, like construction is a big chunk of the economy. Well, there's automatically a lot of social distancing in construction. So there's a lot of construction going on. Um, now, you don't so much see that, um, but it's going on. We never really padlocked the factories. Um, we didn't padlock a, a, you know, a lot of like food manufacturing. So the things that are out of sight kind of kept going, and the things that were in sight didn't keep going. So, and, and then when we have you know, these uh, vaccines on the way, that's even going to help those other things. Now, let me give you the bad news. The bad news, the economic bad news, in my opinion, is no longer COVID. I mean, it's still bad, but I'm, I'm saying that's largely in the past. I'm convinced that the overwhelming majority of the negative economic impact is over. The bad news is the political shift, a policy shift away from growth. I think that's, that's my economic worry for, for, for this year isn't COVID. My economic worry for this year is a slow-growth, anti-growth tax hiking, uh, big government regulation, big spending, monetary debasement agenda. Yeah, and and let's certainly hope and pray that uh, that the uh, the level heads prevail in Washington D.C. Uh, that don't look at this as an opportunity to uh, go out and gouge. Uh, in terms of increased taxes across the board, which could put the bucket of cold water on the recovering economy quite quickly and could not only undo the recovery, but quite frankly, undo many of the gains that we've seen over the last several years. Well, if we lose two seats today in Georgia, then, you know, that's a little bit of the breaking of the dam. Um, you know, maybe we lose one seat. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I use the futures markets, uh, the political futures markets. We've talked about that before. They've generally been right or better than pundits like me. Um, and, you know, the Senate was going to be the brake pedal. What if the brake, what if the line to the brake pedal gets cut and Bidenism just, and Harrisism with a kind of an adult Biden, I don't mean to be insulting, but I just, he doesn't strike me as a man who's like in command of things. So that means he kind of gives in to the, to the appointees and to the vice president who are more to the left. And you know Harris well, you know, being where, where you are geographically, that could be a real concern. You know, the markets did well, but you know who did best last year? You know, you know which kind of investor did better than any other kind of investor? Bitcoin investors. Hmm. And then gold and silver. That's not a good sign. 
That no. is people no. engaging in the Armageddon trade. Exactly right. Those are folks that say, I have concerns over the future of the dollar, the strength of the economy in the United States, and so I'm going to start sheltering a little bit here. And uh, that uh, that is certainly a, a troubling potential indicator. We'd like to hope that they're wrong. We'd like to hope, as I suggest a moment ago, that the level heads will prevail and not tank any sort of recovery. But, uh, well, won't be first time we've been surprised on that uh, on that front either. Jerry Bauer, Jerry, again, an economist, best-selling author, journalist, publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily. Information available on the web by going to affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. All right, 548, let's get you caught up on some traffic here. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, numbers tell the story. Let's look at some numbers out of Georgia. Right now, 55% of the precincts reporting in the senatorial runoff between John Ossoff and David Perdue. John Ossoff capturing 52% of the vote against Purdue's 48 in the other Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Kelly Loeffler. Warnock with 52.3% of the vote and Loeffler with 47.9%. Again, this is only 55% of the precincts reporting. We've got a long way to go into the evening and likely into tomorrow. Another set of numbers that are very telling. Cases of COVID, specifically COVID deaths worldwide, 1,874,316. Here in the United States, 365,593 Americans have died since March of last year due to COVID-19 complications. Some of that is not preventable. But another series of numbers that tell a story that, in fact, are all preventable, and that is global abortion numbers. According to information made available in the World Health Organization, the world saw 42.6 million abortions conducted in 2020, and this, of course, surpasses all of the leading causes of death combined. It's quite the story. Brian Johnston joins us to tell us more. He's Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters. Heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And you know, as much as the COVID-19 numbers are heartbreaking, Brian, to look at the abortion numbers and just see the significant size. We're talking about... In the case of abortions conducted in 2020 across the globe, it well exceeds even the population of the entire state of California. 42.6 million abortions. Wow. Yes, Craig, it is stunning. And again, the Worldometer, which uh, I think it was the Christian, the Christian Post, published those numbers today. But they got that from a secular organization the Worldometer, and they were informed by the World Health Organization. And those two entities, they simply refer to these really as procedures. So they're not warning that. They're just reporting it. 
but these are intentional, as you uh, point out. These are not uh, miscarriages. These are intentional use of medicine. Again, these are people that are doing these abortions are people who at one time their profession swore they would never harm, ever. And yet, because we look at the world numbers, but really it's because of that decision in 1973, the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, the companion decision of January of 1973, that unleashed, because of who we are as a nation, it unleashed the abortion mentality on the medical profession and on the world that abortion was accepted by our Supreme Court, every state in the nation, every state in our nation said, hang on. Now, even if a woman's going through a, a difficult time, or even if there's something, quote, wrong with the child, we need to still monitor and control the number of, you just can't hand out abortions like candy. So every state in the nation, even California and Massachusetts and New York, they still controlled and limited abortion. It was January 22nd of 73. So we know in America, pro-lifers know that date. But it's a worldwide cultural phenomenon now. And it isn't just about these babies. Medicine was attacked. Medicine for 3,000 years, that profession. And this is important now. And I know you get it, Greg. But the fact is, is that these babies are killed. They're the most vulnerable human beings. When you're that size, you're incredibly vulnerable. But medicine is no longer committed to protecting and caring for the vulnerable. And now we live in a culture that if you are medically vulnerable, be careful, because not all doctors in fact, relatively few, honor the oath. And if it's easier on everybody to be rid of the vulnerable, you're looking at a culture that's been inverted. And I'm afraid we're seeing that. We've talked about it many times, Craig. I know you share that burden. But our culture now is dealing with a phenomenon that many people still don't fully see. And what January 22nd and 73 brought, yes, the loss of these babies, but much more. This is an issue now that those who should care for the vulnerable, you know, if they're out of money, if, they, if the doctor's tired, if they feel, oh, there's nothing more I can do, let's just get it over with. If that's now an ethical way to approach medicine, we're dealing with something that Western civilization never smiled on. That's, that's a violation of Western civilization where you can dismiss vulnerable, innocent lives. So Christians in particular should be aware of that, that this culture now has, and again, it's a worldwide culture, the American influence. We know it from television. We know it from the news. If you travel internationally, you know that America influences the world. And so this influence now on medicine is of such import. And as we are going through a biomedical challenge as a nation in the world, 
there's a lot at stake, folks. And we need to understand the need to advocate for those who are vulnerable. So make sure, obviously, these babies, obviously these babies, and the pro-life movement has been such an honor to be part of a movement that advocates for those that can't protect themselves. But that class now is expanding. And that's why the those who died in in San Jose and the Mercury News covered it, but after that the rest of the media didn't. That was the only secular news source that pointed out that Gavin Newsom had done exactly the same thing that Mario Cuomo had done. Those who were most vulnerable because their immune systems were reduced. They weren't offered stuff that can, and there's things that can boost your immune system again. We've talked about it, and you have talked about it, and other, many people. But do make sure your personal immune system is boosted. There's simple things. Study up on that. That's a better, I'm not saying that's the only thing, but boost those immune systems. But if we're not advocating for those who are vulnerable, recognize that medicine as a profession has been turned on its head. And it was actually Conan Doyle wrote it. He was a doctor himself, aside from being a brilliant guy, writing about detective novels. He said that if the doctor loses the moral guidance of his profession, he becomes the most fearful member of society. Because he has coldness and he has knowledge. He knows as human beings, he can dismiss you. Hey, if you're a doctor in training, you work in cadavers. You better be used to being cold about the human body. You better not. I don't want you sweat. If I get hit by a Mack truck and you're my friend and you're a doctor, I want you to be very cold and just say, oh, here's Brian, but, you know, I'm just going to deal with this. I'm going to do these sutures. I'm not afraid of his blood. I'm not. I want you to be cold. I want you to have that training. But if you no longer have the ethical guidance, as Conan Doyle said, that profession becomes a terrifying profession. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware this is a very serious spiritual battle we're in. Because human lives are water at stake. Human lives. And we have to be willing to fight and understand the nature of this battle. So... Well, and you touch on such an important point here, Brian, because it really is a matter of of life and death. It is spiritual warfare. It is goodness versus evil, dark versus light. And we need to be mindful, as we talked about this at the start of the program tonight, we, we need to be mindful of just exactly the kind of battle that we're engaged in here. And we're not going to war against other human beings. People are making wrong choices because they've not been taught properly. They've not been taught the value of life. And so let's make sure that we're doing everything that we can to not only stand up for the cause of life, give voice to those who have no voice, but then make sure that we are teaching and training future generations of doctors, of the importance of the Hippocratic growth, do no harm, and that we're teaching our children the importance and value of the gift of life. Well, one way that starts, of course, is to be informed. And a great way to be informed is to be plugged into Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. There's also a very convenient podcast available. So if you miss a show, you can always get the information and take it on the go. Check it out. 
CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. The broadcast, Life Matters, with Brian Johnston, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. All right, let's get you updated on some traffic. 